I'm Alec Lace. Welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Welcome, everybody, to a special edition of First Class Fatherhood. I am happy, as always, to be here with you. Thank you for stopping by. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, please get over there and bang that subscribe button. You do not want to miss all the action that is coming your way right here on First Class Fatherhood. All right, dads, 2019 has just been an incredible year featuring so many awesome dads. And this week, I will be dropping a series of the most downloaded interviews in five categories. Today, it will be the top five most downloaded celebrities and entertainment interviews. It is amazing how many great interviews I've had to leave off of this list, but I am trying to stick to the numbers here and give you the best of the best in 2019. I cannot say thank you enough to all of you listeners out there who have continued to support me throughout the year. And let me remind you guys that you can always scroll through the archives of the show here and find all of the entertainers and celebrities that aren't included in this collection, such as my interviews with actors A.J. Buckley, Barry Sloan, and Dean McDermott, singers Mark McGrath, Struggle Jennings and Justin Moore, Bachelorette stars Jason Mesnick and Ryan Sutter, Broadway stars Robert Creighton and James Snyder, and the list goes on and on. So I encourage you to take a look and check out all of the entertainers and celebrities that joined me here in 2019. But here we go for the top five most downloaded episodes of 2019. And number five is world-class hunter Jim Shockey, who was here recently. I've also had the honor of interviewing his son-in-law, Tim Brent, this year on the podcast. But he is going to be first up. Jim Shockey at number five. Number four is singer Lee Greenwood, who wrote and performs one of the greatest patriotic songs of all time, God Bless the USA. Number three is my interview with a man known as the Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort, who joined me on the podcast with his longtime girlfriend and cop. I could obviously include Jordan Belfort in a top five entrepreneur list, but I decided not to include that category. So I put him in here because the downloads just exploded with his interview. He, of course, was portrayed by Leonardo DiCaprio in the blockbuster smash hit, the Wolf of Wall Street. Number two is the star of Little People Big World, Matt Roloff, who went through a highly publicized divorce with his ex-wife Amy. He spoke all about that and so much more during our interview, which was picked up by several publications and helped the interview gain some massive exposure. And coming in at number one is the one and only Tony Hawk. That's right, the skateboarding legend was kind enough to promote our interview on his Instagram page, which has over 4 million followers. He featured the episode with a swipe-up feature in his stories, and the interview just exploded to become the most downloaded episode, not only in this category, but overall in 2019. So I hope you enjoy all of these interviews tomorrow. I'll be hitting you guys with the top five fitness fathers who join me this year for a final Transformation Tuesday edition of First Class Fatherhood. As always, please help me spread the word about this podcast to every father in your neighborhood or in your contact list. Let them know about the show that celebrates fatherhood and family life. Fatherhood rocks, family values rule, and every day is Father's Day right here with me. And I will be right back with the top five most downloaded episodes of Celebrities and Entertainers. I'm Alec Lace, and you're listening to First Class Fatherhood. Nothing beats an American flag made in the USA, right? Well, how about an American flag made in the USA by veterans out of duty-worn fatigues from all branches of the military? That is exactly what you get with combat flags. Combat flags are handcrafted from duty-worn fatigues and offer a tangible piece of freedom to the American people. Each flag is accompanied by a professionally designed and printed card that tells the story of service of a soldier, marine, airman, sailor, or coastie who wore the fatigues used to make the flag. They are the real deal, Dad, so what are you waiting for? Visit CombatFlags.com and use the promo code FATHER, and First Class Fatherhood listeners will save 10% off their purchase. 
Veteran-owned, American-made. CombatFlags.com, promo code FATHER. Joining me now, First Class Father Jim Shockey. Welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Thank you very much. It's an honor and a pleasure. All right, let's start it right here. How many kids do you have and how old are they? Two. Our son, Grandlin, is 33 and our daughter, Eva, is 31. Yeah, very cool. What type of sports or activities were they into growing up? You know, Eva was a, was a really good field hockey player. Uh, both of them played tennis. Our son, Bradman, was a uh, good soccer goalie and, and, uh, you know, both of them could swim, but I, you know, I was a swimmer when I grew up, uh, you know, traveled all over the world for it. And I, I kind of pulled them away from that, but I suspect both of them would have been good at that sport as well. Yeah. Very cool. Did you ever get involved with coaching them at all? Like with the soccer and stuff, or did you always enjoy that stuff from the sideline? <laughs> I can assure you there's no worse soccer coach in the world than I was. So, <laughs> uh, that, that 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 was not that's not one of my skill sets. Uh, so I, I watched from the from the sidelines with uh, Louise, my wife. Okay, very cool. If you could, Jim, please just take a minute here to hit my listeners with a little bit about your background and what you do. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was um, uh, I started as an antique dealer out of university and had Ralph Lauren come in and pretty much buy out most of my inventory to furnish his Ralph Lauren country store. So I used that amount of money to get into the outfitting business. So I'd already been writing for outdoor hunting, fishing publications. And so I had a bit of a profile and used that to springboard the marketing of, of my new outfitting territory, basically taking hunters out into the wilderness of British Columbia um, to go hunting. It's a, they're like deeds to a house. You you buy the rights to use the land, mostly crown land up there. And from that, uh, that kind of morphed into a television career, which was originally to market the hunts, but uh, in the end became larger than our our outfitting territories uh, up in the Yukon and Saskatchewan and, and uh, on Vancouver Island and British Columbia. Uh, so, so it's it's been an interesting interesting career ride for the last thirty five years. I, I, my wife often says that uh, I baited and switched her. I started as an antique dealer. That's who she married, an art dealer, and uh, ended up with an outfitter. <laughs> yeah, it's been an incredible journey for sure, there, Jim. And uh, about about how old were you when you first became a dad, and how did becoming a father kind of change your perspective on life? I was 26 years old uh, when Louise and I were married, and, and uh, 27 when our son Bramlin was was born. Uh, I, I mean, there, there's no greater thing, no greater calling, uh, I don't believe, than, than becoming a, a father, a mother, a parent. I mean, that's why we're here on this earth, and, and <laughs> you know, any. Any father out there listening to this right now, any parent knows that incredible feeling of, of I guess it's comprehension when you hold your your child for the first time. It, it's uh, it, it's life changing uh, for the for a, a better way 
for anybody that's uh, that's a parent. Yeah, very well said. And and about what what age were your kids? You first let them start shooting, and then eventually, uh, you know, go hunting and stuff with you. Uh, you know, I, I was very careful. Both Louise and I were very careful about the drawing the children into what I love. And Louise, my wife, is absolutely not a hunter. I mean, she can shoot a gun very accurately, better than than uh, I am actually handling a gun. Um, but I, you know, the the allure of being, you know, kind of wild. You get to go out into the wilderness and and look for animals. It's it's a pretty natural thing to be in it. And like I say, the the allure is there. I've seen many other outfitters get their kids involved at an early age, and and that takes away some of the options they have, uh, you know, for for education particularly. So so I did let them shoot, and I. You know, supervised obviously, and and you know, Bram and our son, when it when it was legal for him to go hunting, I think he was ten years old, was the first time I really let him, you know, be the hunter. Before that, both of them had come along on on uh, not not the real exotic trips into the true wilderness, but but local local hunting trips. So so they were exposed to it. Um, Bramman took to it naturally. Eva sort of took her mom's side and became more of a a dancer. In fact, she was a a competition salsa dancer dancer and had never hunted at all. Uh, When she came back from university at the age of 20, that's when she told us she uh, decided she wanted to learn how to hunt. So she came in it that way. Our son, Bramman, at 16, told me that if he continued on a hunting path, he would always be under my shadow, and, and uh, he wanted to, you know, still be in the hunting industry, but in a different um, way than I was as, as a hunter. So he, he got into production, uh, television production in the outdoor industry. And so so they, it was kind of funny how they, one started as a hunter, the other one not, and then they switched, switched places later on in life. Yeah, so cool. And I, I'm more like uh, your wife, Louise, there in the sense that I, I'm not a hunter. I, you know, I'm not a, I'm a more city guy here, but it's definitely something that I would like to eventually experience. I have four children of my own, three boys and a, and a girl, and I would love to experience things like that. I just recently, you know, took some fishing and, and trying to get myself more into these things that make me uncomfortable. What What would you suggest to be like the best path for like a non-hunter, non-shooter guy like myself that wants to experience these type of things with their kids? What's like the first steps or the best way for you know guys like me to go about doing that? Well, I mean, the outdoors is not that far away from any city. If you're if you have the desire, and I mean, there's no limit to desire, but desires need. If you, if you really want to, you can you can get out there and and you know find somebody who hunts who who can take you with them to sit on a stand and and experience what it's like. Uh, you know, when the, the dawn rises from gray to, to to light, and the sounds of the wildlife, how the world, the natural world, changes, and the, the fresh air, the exercise, the, the wonder when the first animal, whether it's a squirrel or or a woodpecker, comes by your stand. Uh, you know, those are not. It's not that difficult to experience. You just have to have the desire to really want to do it. Now, if you Want to take it to a higher level? There's there's courses to learn how to hunt. You can't 
and and use a firearm. You, you can't. It's highly regulated. You can't uh, go buy a gun and go kill a deer. That's not the way it works. You're you have to learn and and be sanctioned to do that license. Then you've got to learn the skills that are that are part of the process of being a hunter. That you know, with our urbanization, and maybe that's in your case. I'm sure your antecedents were rural. They had to be because we all were. All of our antecedents were. So you know, we've lost those skills over the last three or four decades of urbanization. So you, now we have to relearn them again, and that means finding someone who can teach you. And there, there's all kinds of fishing game uh, clubs, wildlife uh, federations in every community, rural community uh, around North America, Canada, and the United States. So join one. Go meet people and, and start that way. It, and I'll tell you, if you if you go down that pathway, it, it's a, truly a pathway to enlightenment and. and and wonder about this world, uh, tolerance, things that in the city we, we sometimes lose sight of. And, and uh, besides the fact that you'll be eating organically field to table, there's no better thing to be you know, existing on than, than wild game. It's natural. It's the most natural thing you can possibly eat. So, so I, you know, like I say, there, there's clubs, there's ways... There's means that, uh, but if you don't want to go that far along it, go sit outside in, in a rural setting and just sit and, and watch what happens around you. Let that, you know, the water calm around you and, and, and nature happen. It's, it's uh, like I say, wondrous. You, you'll, you'll never regret it if you do put on that pathway. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And it's definitely something that I would like to experience. And, and like I said, I, I just recently took some fishing. But, but there's, there is something, as I've gotten older here, uh, you know, the thought of actually killing your own food and eating it and taking it, like you said, from field to table, there's something about that that's very attractive. So it's definitely something that I want to experience. And I'm not too proud to, you know, my kids are well aware that I'm not a fisherman and a hunter. So uh, we'll get a chance to learn and experience those things together. Um, and, and what about as far as, like, when were you first uh, approached, or how did you, the first TV series or show go about, and how was it for you the first time camera? Like, was that an uncomfortable experience for you, or did, did it take a while for you to adapt, and did you have some training for that? How did that all work? Uh, you know, I, I'm pretty centered in who I am, and I, I, you, you, if you put a camera in front of me, I, I don't really see any reason to act differently than I, I am in real life. Why, why would I? I'm, I'm not an actor, and I'm quite happy being who I am. So the camera, the experience of having a camera there documenting what I happened to be doing was no big deal for me. And, and certainly I did not have any training. Um, probably, you know, Brad Pitt doesn't need to worry about losing his, his job to me. But uh, it, was, uh, it was a natural progression. I was a writer. I probably published a thousand magazines, articles over the years and outdoor publications. And uh, it was about the time that the Cablevision networks were looking for content. And I had a company that had a show, I think it was ESPN, uh, came to me and would I asked me if I would guide their, their host. So I did that. And, and I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, it's what I do for a living. It's, it's who I am. I wasn't acting. The host was acting. And, and uh, I think that, it was pretty obvious when the show aired, and so it didn't take long for 
for doorways to open uh, to other other programming opportunities as well. So, so it, it was it was a natural progression. And, and I think 2003, I I uh, created my own production house and we started producing our own television shows, uh, videos in the five years before that. Uh, VHS was way back then. Uh, I, because I wanted to control the creative content. I, I was a storyteller, as I said. I published a thousand articles, and, and I didn't always feel that uh, you know we were attaining anything higher than sort of base mediocrity on on the productions. And I thought we could do better. So I I have <laughs> endeavored to do so for well since 2003. Yeah, and it's incredible now just the, the way that the opportunity is out there for every, you know, for people to, uh, get their specific audience due to the, the wide range of all the technology now. And, uh, you know, I've had guys like Matt Roloff on the show from the Little People Big World and it, it, it's made a whole life change in his life. And it's just, uh, it's incredible the way we can just focus in on these certain genres of, uh, of lifestyle and we can really focus on, a you know, you can really grab your audience. And I, I let me pull this back into you as a dad here. Um, what type of, um, obviously you're very disciplined out in the field there while you're hunting, but what type of disciplinarian were you as a father with your kids growing up? We, we, we made a rule right off the bat, Louisa and I, that there was no hitting in our family. It was, that was a line that absolutely our children were not allowed to cross. They weren't allowed to hit each other, and we never hit them. So, you know, there was no corporal punishment. There, there was... You know, Louise was dealing with the children, Ben and Eva, more than I was during the day. But I was always there as, as kind of that that you know fearsome dad. If if I, you know I was ever pushed to that limit, which you know I guess I guess it's a I'd like to think of it as respect. The uh, you know probably there was a touch of of fear in there that the kids never really knew. You know what it would, what would happen if they pushed their dad past that limit, and and hence we never had to do anything. Other, you know, you know, never had to hit a child or spank them. Um, it, it worked for us. We we uh, we were strict, I would say, but not not where you knock the uh, independence out of the children, the self reliance. You, you wanted them to take initiative and. It, we, we never we, were, we guided them, but never held them on a chain. Uh, you know, and, and I guess Louise and I looked at it. You know, if we our job was to get them up to university alive, and then it was uh, and it was over to them at that point. And, and that's that's what we did. We uh, we instilled, I think, respect for adults, respect for the parents. Without having to resort to any kind of a physical emphasis on that, uh, but but you know I, I was stricter than Louise for sure because I was I was the one that she would call on if, if discipline was required, and the kids of course never wanted to at that point, so it was very very seldom they had to uh, had to get involved in any way other than being a, a doting father. Yeah, very cool. And obviously now, you know, both of your kids, you know, have kids of their own. Uh, my oldest is 13. Like I said, I have four. So I, I, you've been through this already with the with the dating scene with your kids. I've had your son-in-law, Tim Brent, on the show uh, quite a while back there. 
What was it like for you as a dad when your kids first hit that dating scene? And was it different the way you handled it with your daughter than your son? <laughs> yeah, it was definitely different with my daughter and my son. Uh, <laughs> my 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 wife uh, Louise made it abundantly clear to me that you know keep my nose out of it. And, uh, they were, I mean, my our house is uh, filled with religious artifacts, uh, and also with. You know, my side of the house, uh, where I, you know, my man cave side is obviously filled with, you know, animals, mounted animals and, and, uh, skeletons, all kinds of crazy stuff. So, you know, our, our daughter was already, you know, <laughs> trying to find a, a boyfriend with me as a father, which wasn't, you know, word gets around. Her friends would tell the tale of, of walking into my, crypt and, and seeing, you know, totem poles and uh, arrowheads, uh, all kinds of unusual <laughs> things that I gathered from around the world, you know, African baths and, and, and carvings. I, it, you know, it wasn't easy for you. You know, the, for her, she had to find somebody really, really dumb or really, really confident. And uh, thank God that uh, she... Uh, you know, had a, had a lot of her mother in her, and, and uh, common sense. Hopefully, I helped along that way, and uh, and found Tim in the end. Uh, but I was told in no uncertain terms to keep my nose out of her business. Do not threaten any of these young boys that were chasing around like little bucks and rut. It was uh, it was it was difficult for a father, you know, for this father to stand by, and yeah, especially when you know that some of them aren't worth you know, spending five minutes with, let alone, you know, months and months or, or a lifetime. So so it was, uh, I, I kept my nose out of it. Our son, Bradman, was, uh, you know, he's pretty private about any of that, and I really didn't know much about any girl that he might have been dating until he uh, introduced us to the, the young lady from Kansas City that, that he married. And... Uh, Hopefully, happily ever after with the two grandchildren, both both our children. You know, I, I couldn't have personally chosen spouses for them you know, out of the you know three and a half billion guys out there, or three and a half billion women. Uh, you know, I, I would have chosen the exact people that they chose for themselves. So, so it's you know, probably best I kept my nose out of Evie's business and and uh, you know. You see that if you raise your children right, you don't have to worry about that. They're they're going to make the right choices because they have pride in who they are. They don't want to make wrong choices, and nor do they want to spend the rest of their life with someone that isn't their soulmate. So you know it, it all works out as long as you start with the child rearing. Most important part of it. Yeah, very well said, Jim. And, and what has the transition been like for you here, going from father to now grandfather? What has that experience been like for you? Uh, you know, I, I guess I've gone from I've, I've turned into somebody everybody used to know. <laughs> when when the grandchildren are around, uh, Nana Weezy, my wife, you know, like I say, I'm somebody she used to know. Uh, so you know, it's it's uh, you know, it's not about me anymore. It's, it's these grandchildren are, are the world revolves around them uh, in our families, and, and so it should. That's that's uh, 
that's the natural progression. We make space, and, and uh, the new ones take that space. So, so it's. I, I think you, you know, on a philosophical side, you 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 really are faced with your mortality. This is this is an ongoing process. You know, our children. We thought the world revolved around them, and, and that was the center of the universe. Well, in fact, you know, now the center of the universe has shifted again, and it's the next generation, and and we're further from the center of the universe. And, and it's, uh, you know, on the philosophical side, like I said, it, it's uh, it's definitely taken a, a, a coming to terms with with uh, you know, there's there's an end game, and none of us ever escape it. And the beautiful thing is. It's it continues. It's a continuum, uh, a beautiful, natural life begets death, begets life, begets death, and it's it's a uh, it, it's it's pretty amazing. I'm I'm been honored and privileged to be a, to be a, a part of this one world, this one life that we all get. Um, I, I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah, very cool. And obviously, you've had so many, uh, you know, hunting experiences. Is is there a favorite uh, hunting trip or a favorite kill that you've had uh, over the years here? One that sticks out to you? Well, I mean, you know, we get stereotyped and, and marginalized and vilified in the popular press these days. You know, they all try and paint us as, you know, trophy hunters that go kill an animal, cut its head off, leave it, you know, horrible lout. In fact, it's that's so far from the truth. The, the, you know, it's not about the killing. That, that's a tiny, tiny little part of a hunt. Hunting is about camaraderie and, and lifestyle, family, fun, adventure. These these are the greater parts of hunting. That makes up 99.999% of a hunt. So, you know, for me, it's not about a, a given kill. Um, it, it's a, truly about times that I've, enjoyed in the wildlands with my family members. I mean, Eva getting her first deer, I was there. Our son, Bramley, you know, his first deer, I was there. My my father, his last deer, we hunted together for 43 years in a row for white-tailed deer in Saskatchewan, Canada. And I was there when he got his last deer at 85 years of age. You know, those are the, those are the hunts that I remember that are that mean the most to me and, and uh, that, you know, I cherish. And I will take to my grave. And and, and those are the memories that uh, that stand out for me in, in terms of hunting. Yeah, that's awesome, Jim. What about for the future for yourself here? Uh, you got any upcoming projects coming? What, what kind of goals or plans do you have here for yourself for the future? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're at that. You know, harvest time of our life, Louise will say. And so, I, you know, I, I'm spending time right now. I'm working on a novel. Uh, I've spent more time playing guitar than and writing songs than I have in, in the last four decades, probably since university, uh, back when I was in my teens. You know. So so I'm, I'm enjoying being, I, I guess, at this stage in life where I can do those things. It's not about having to pay the next bill. You know, we worked hard for, you know, I worked hard my entire life. And uh, so, you know, it's not about having a return on investment for every hour you put into something, at least not a monetary return. Now there's there's a creative return 
things that I put off, like this novel I've been working on. In fact, that's what I was doing uh, before before we started talking today. Um, you know, I, I want to get those things done because, as I said, the the end of the road isn't uh, isn't that far away anymore. When you become a grandparent, after being a parent, you you have to face reality. So so my goals now, like I say, are, are more on the creative side and and also the ambassadorial side to pass on the knowledge that I have and the knowledge of what hunting is about to people that don't understand what it's about and, and what hunters are about in spite of what the popular press says about us. You know, that that's not what we are and that's not what hunting is about. So I'll spend a lot of time as well um, educating people about that. Uh, I'm looking yeah. forward to the next few years. It'll, it'll, it'll be fun. Yeah, you're definitely a blessing to the community, Jim. They definitely need your voice to um, to help them out. I, I understand, and I see what you're talking about. What the, you know, your community is going through there. So, uh, you know, they, they are very fortunate to have you at the forefront of that. You're a great voice in that community. But let me. Last thing I want to hit you with here, Jim. I love to ask all the dads that I get on the podcast. What type of advice do you have for that new dad or for that about to be father who's out there listening? <laughs> hey, well. First of all, I'll be speaking to somebody who's probably shell shocked, so they're, they they may not be in a mood to listen right now. But uh, you know, the the, the work it, it is worth every second of of the effort, and and enjoy every second. I, yeah, every moment that you're with your new child, you'll you'll think this is the greatest moment. You don't want that child to change from that instant, and and you know what, the next instant is even better and the next one after that is better again and then before you know it it's over so enjoy every single moment that you're with your children regardless of if they happen to be throwing a tantrum or or you know they've made your your wife crazy or you're not getting any sleep it, it's a beautiful beautiful thing and every moment is is to be cherished so enjoy it yeah, very well said. I love the message. This has been an honor for me. I gotta say, Jim Shine, you are a first class father all the way, and thank you so much for giving me a few minutes of your time on first class fatherhood. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Dads, are you tired of taking supplements that never deliver? Well, Redcon One was created to ensure that you get real hardcore products that deliver real results. Trusted by four-time world strongest man Brian Shaw and founded by supplement entrepreneur Aaron Singerman, Redcon One is crushing the industry. You have to try their MRE bars, which are packed full of nutritious food sources that will replenish your system when you need it most. And they taste so good, your toddler will think they're eating a candy bar. But we're talking whole food meal replacement. And right now, First Class Fatherhood listeners can save 20% on their entire order from Redcon 1. Simply use the promo code FATHER at the checkout. So let's go, dads. For the highest state of readiness, choose Redcon 1. Visit Redcon1.com, use the promo code FATHER, and save 20%. Joining me now, First Class Father Lee Greenwood. Welcome to First Class Fatherhood. And thank you very much. Uh, that's a that's an honorable uh, introduction. You know, I've always considered myself as a good dad. Uh, the jury's still out. <laughs> well, let's start here. How many kids do you have, and how old are they? Well, I have children uh, from very uh, early in my life, with uh, two or three failed marriages, and it wasn't until I found my wife Kim 
1989 that, uh, you know, I found a woman I really loved and and just made sure that I was a good father from then on. We had children. Uh, we have two boys, and uh, we've been married 27 years. They are now 24 and 21 and doing great in college. So it's been an interesting journey because, and not until I found Kimberly, that I really dedicate myself to family. Yeah, very cool. And what type of uh, sports or activities were the boys into growing up? There wasn't much sports for them. Um, the one boy is a scientist. The other is uh, is a music major. Um, Parker, our younger boy who turns 21 in July, is at TCU. He's, he's a chancellor scholar. But he's the kind of kid that had a perfect science score in high school, perfect SAT score. The other son was also an actor and a and a and a singer in, in college and in high school and was valedictorian of high school, went to WNL, Washington Lee in Virginia, for four years with a biochem major, and then went on pre-med and to Vanderbilt University. Now he's getting a Ph.D. in cancer research, cancer biology. So both are artistic, but both have chosen different paths in their life. And throughout all of the times when we first had them, and I delivered both of the children uh, from my wife when uh, you know, I was in the birthing room to the point where they were toddlers and then uh, in school and all those years you were carpool mom and dad and then getting them out of high school and into college it's been an interesting journey and i've and i've loved all of it yeah wow what yeah well said and what a talented uh family that you have there and if you could lee just take a minute here to hit my listeners with a little bit about your background and what you do okay i'm uh i'm born in california born in los angeles raised in sacramento on a farm my parents were divorced when i was a year old because my father joined the navy and served in world war ii uh, also in the merchant marine that left uh, my mother with uh, two young kids and, and try to make, make a living during very hard times uh, during the war. So it was their problem, but I had a great uh, a home life with my grandparents, my, my mother's mother and father, and uh, it just didn't know that I didn't have anything. I mean, working on a farm and, you know, washing your socks out and put them on the bathtub and so you have clean socks. I, early on, I would sell fruit and... and uh, and flowers to the Chinese market down the street and make enough money that I could buy my own clothes. And graduated high school when I was 16 and went straight to Nevada and start working in the casinos because my mother, one of the jobs she had was a musician, and she played in the 40s. And so I kind of just took that path, and I knew I wanted to do music from the very beginning. And when I left home, left the farm, I, I was straight to Reno and then Vegas and worked in the casinos for almost 20 years before I had my country music career. So as you turn the page, you know, from from school years to the Vegas years to the Nashville years, it's been an interesting time where I could get a different perspective from all kinds of, uh, of views. Um, but not until I met my wife, Kim, did I really have a handle on, on life. Yeah, very cool. And what an amazing journey that you've had here. And, 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 and how did becoming a dad kind of change your perspective on life, Lee? Well, you know, if you you spent enough time in Vegas, and those were my formative years. I went there when I was 17, left when I was 37, and you kind of learn a lot about survival. Um, it's the Greenfelt jungle. I dealt cards in the casinos for four years just to kind of get a taste of it, and uh, and you learn how to survive. And it was it's a basic instinct for me as a as, as learning about business and putting music and business together, where I would make sure that I had enough work for the band, and I could also get in positions where I could be viewed by other acts. And, uh, and and kind of get your name out there because it takes an awful long time. But when I got to Nashville, Tennessee, and my career changed from pop, rock, and, um, 
and gospel music to basically country, it then it's a whole different bag. I mean, I, I, I learned a lot about the country. I learned about the South, and uh, which is kind of the heart of America for me. Um, I, I visited the, nor the northeast cities and then back out to the west in traveling, and I did 300 days a year with my bus and trailer, and, and, and now we're... You know, we're a headliner, and I still travel by bus and trailer, but it's it's a different kind of life now because I can look at it from sort of the top down instead of from the bottom up. Yeah, very cool. And what are some of the challenges, uh, Lee, of being, you know, on tour? I know that, you know, time is a problem. Did, did the children ever um, travel with you when you went on tour? Did they stay home at a home base? How did that kind of work out? Yeah, it was from the very beginning when Dalton was born that I was touring an awful lot and Kim had traveled with me for the first three years of our marriage, and when Dalton was born, he traveled with us on the bus for the next uh, two years. And then I opened up a theater in East Tennessee right near Dollywood, and we were there for five years. So our second son was born while I was at the theater. And so they pretty much knew the theater life for the first five, six years of their life. And then when they got into uh, into grammar school, we moved back to Nashville and then it was more of a normal kind of life where we lived near the school and, and took care of all of their personal needs no matter what it was. And they just were the perfect, you know, little citizens from the very beginning. And I, we always made sure that they understood that whatever we did, and my wife is a business person as well, it was a job, it was work. And, and kind of pushing away the celebrity part where uh, they would see it and get part of it and it was exciting for them, but they knew it was a job. When Dad got on stage, it was a job. When my wife is a pageant director, former Miss Tennessee, in 1989, and, and worked with the USA uh, Miss Universe organization for the last 25 years, and it's a job for her. She would leave town for like five, six days, and the kids would know she's going to work. Now, glamorous work, but it's still work. Yeah, yeah, very well said. Now, how about as far as discipline goes, Lynn? What type of uh, a disciplinarian were you as a father? Um. As a disciplinarian, I, you know, I really didn't have to lay down the law too hard to our kids. They always respected our wishes, and I, we were blessed, I guess, in that regard. But, you know, the thing is, I think about kids, as long as you give them plenty of love and they make a little diversion from that, anything that they would do that didn't, dis that didn't please you would actually hurt their feelings. And so you kind of just let that take its course. I, I never had to lay a hand on them. Um, I, I, you know, I, I got stern with them a couple of times when I was displeased. But, you know, if, when you disappoint your parents, and I went through that too as a kid, even with my grandparents, knowing that I disappointed them crushed me. I mean, I just like because they did so much for you, and so we did everything we could for our kids. But we, uh, we never laid out a red carpet. We knew that we knew to let them know that hard work will pay off for you. So dedicate yourself, and they've not disappointed us anywhere along the way. Yeah, that's awesome. And and my I have four kids myself. My daughter just had her little pre-K uh, graduation ceremony type deal, and one of the songs they sang there was the God Bless the USA, uh, which is always such an awesome moment, especially when the children are singing it. What was the genesis of the song? How did you come about writing it? Well, that's a that's a that's a really a thorough question because um, because I'm from California, I didn't I didn't travel much until I got. You know, not even in the Nevada years did I tour much. Uh, pretty much just stayed in the state. Not till I got my country music career, which was in 1979, 1980, did I begin touring the country. And I'd always had a desire to see more of it, and always had a desire to write a song 
from my heart about our country and about what it meant to me and the unification of the coast, you know, from the east to the west, the north and the south. And when I got a platform to deliver the song, I was at MCA for 14 years, just after my third or fourth album, and I was touring 300 days a year at that point, I went to my producer and I said, I think I'd like to make an album, you know, with, with patriotic songs. I said, but I've got this song uh, that might be included in it. And we talked about it. It was a diversion from what radio liked from me, uh, the romantic songs about uh, uh, hurting and, 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 and sometimes wonderful relationships. But he said, well, if you want to do this, we'll do this. But it was never slated for a single. And when we released the album, uh, You've Got a Good Love Coming, we already had a, uh, a video of it. That was our fourth album released, I think, in 1985 or 84. And, uh, and for some reason, Universal picked that song up off the album and said, we want this to be radio. We want radio to hear this. And it really surprised me, uh, to tell you the truth, because not, not only did I not want it to be a single, but I didn't think that branding myself that early in my career with patriotism would have been a good idea. But it turned exactly the opposite. Uh, as we released the song, radio fell in love with it. Um, we had several things along the way, of course, that boosted it to the top of the charts, as you know. It was three times number one in all charts in America uh, after, of course, the Gulf War, then Katrina, the, the attack on America. America reached out for something of a positive nature to build unity, and every time it went there. And you talk about your daughter and how parents teach their kids, grandparents teach their kids, kids, and uh, and pass this song down. It has become now in America's fiber as one of America's uh, anthems, and I sing it still all the time. And as you know, being from Jersey, I mean, I was right after the attack on America. I was there at the Yankee Stadium for the Fireman's Memorial, 2001, and then the Policeman's Memorial at Carnegie Hall and then the fourth game of the World Series at Yankee Stadium. And that was just to build New York, but we toured for two years uh, with the First Lady, then all the military bases, encouraging the United States to get back to the unity. Yeah, and it's definitely, it's one of those songs, Lee, where, you know, it's one of the few songs where, like, the hair always stands up on the back of my neck whenever I hear it, along with, like, our, obviously our national anthem. And uh, it's just, a, it's a wonderful song every time I hear it. And, and it's so cool that God is in the title of the song because, in my opinion, the two greatest problems we're facing in our country right now is this fatherless problem that we're having and also the fact that God has been removed from so much of our society. So have you ever had any kind of – have you been ever restricted or received any kind of negative feedback because of God being mentioned in the song? No, I haven't. And that, that's a good point because I remember when my father was in the Navy in World War II, and I didn't know it till I was 15 or 16 and I finally met him and understood his commitment to the country. If everyone, you know, like in Israel, if all of us had to serve in the military for a couple of years, three years, or four years, you'd understand more of the sacrifice that the military makes for our freedom. And so when I put the words, I'm proud to be an American, I also said I won't forget the men who died. Looking back on, here we are, just past the 75th anniversary of uh, the landing in Normandy, D-Day, and, and the greatest... Uh, generation of all that saved the world from uh, from the evil axis and and how much of a price we paid for it so that when you feel and when you feel pride in yourself and you hear God bless America or America the Beautiful sung by Ray Charles or my song God bless the USA if you're not 
into that, if you don't have your heart beat a little faster for that, you're really not a patriot. You don't understand what America stands for. Yeah, it's it's definitely something that's uh, especially like you said here. We just passed the anniversary of D Day, and it's uh, it, it is those lyrics that we never forget the men that died. And I have so many. I've been blessed to have so many veterans on the show here. I bring on a Navy SEAL every week, and we do a Frogman Friday episode. And it's just, uh, I'm just humbled by the way that that, that uh, you know how lucky and blessed that we are to have the men and women that do fight for our freedom and, and are constantly doing so, even as we speak here. So uh, uh, I love it. And now since. You've been involved with the music industry for so long here. There have been so many changes due to the technology. Just the way people uh, buy and consume content now is drastically different from when you first came on the scene. So how have you kind of adapted? Has there been any difficulty with, with you as far as um, recording or distributing your music and stuff like that? How have you kind of adapted to the technology? There are a lot of changes and as far as mechanical, mechanically speaking. When I first started recording, it was like when the Frank Sinatra era, uh, and they had tape, and you would record on one track, and the whole orchestra was on the other side. And then the Beatles came to this country and invented four-track. And, and it's like, oh, my gosh. But then they wanted to take two tracks for the drums. I was like, well, what, what about the other tracks? You know. And then they got eight tracks, 1632, and now digital, just a, a, innumerable tracks. You can even email a track to somebody else. They put their part on it and email it back. So, yes, technology has changed an awful lot. And I've always been the belief that in any musician's uh, uh, recording, any new technology in the hands of an artist can be a benefit. But if it's in, it's in the hands of somebody who's not an artist, it can be a tragedy, and it can turn out just terrible. So you, you just have to, to go by that axiom that as long as you have artistic approach to it and you know how to, how to manipulate it and don't let it manipulate you, it can be a great tool for recording. Now, as far as getting in the studio and recording myself, there was a little bit of difference in the technology and how it got better uh, through your ears because you sing what you hear. And, uh, and as long as I could hear better, I could sing better and deliver what I needed to deliver. A lot of the pictures that you see of artists in studios are like they're holding a headphone away from their ears. Somewhere like that. that's, not gonna, that's not reality because the headphone would feed back into the microphone. You have to cover up your ears entirely in order to hear that sound. And that is, that's a different world. I'm a scuba diver as well, and it's a different world to close your sense off. One of the senses you have that really is good for us as a human being is, of course, hearing. I mean, and then, the, then if you close off your hearing and all your hearing is what's coming through the headphones, you rely a little bit more on sight and feel and emotions. That, that's always going to be the same. I mean, that, that will never change. From the time when Nat King Cole first sang and, and today's recordings of some of the major stars, your manipulation in the studio may depend upon your experience more than anything, and I try to stay in the studio as much as I can. Yeah, very cool. And as far as your children go, I know you said one one is uh, into music or studying music. I'm I'm not sure if you will quote me there, but uh, um, have did they show like an interest in, in doing your similar style of music, or do they have their own style of music that they enjoy? Do they listen to your music? How does that work? Well, um, twofold question. Um, actually, when my boys used to do homework around the house, and they're not too far from my office where they sit at the desk. I would listen to their headphones occasionally. What are you listening to? And it would be anywhere from old uh, Dean Martin to uh, to my music, uh, from Kanye West to uh, Whitney Houston. I mean, it just it just didn't really matter. They listened to a variety of things. As as and as far as um, as my son Parker, who is the real music student, 
both of them had music in their life from the time they were very young. I'd say seven, eight, or nine, just like you or anybody else who's a who's an, a, a layman and appreciate music. They also appreciated music, and some of mine, but they, they were much more varied in the artists that they appreciated. Uh, Parker, our 21-year-old, uh, who will be 21 in July, was a musical theater uh, scholar at TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. He has two more years. He switched his major to musical composition, so he's going to write music for video games and motion pictures, and uh, he'll currently be going to San Diego and to Palomar and have a workshop with some of the L.A. greats. So he's he's immersed in that. The other student still sings, and he sings uh, not just in the in the choir at church, but uh, they have outside activities they sing at somewhat. So, and my wife is also, by the way, a singer. She sang in in college, and uh, but not professionally. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, my father was actually a uh, stand-in singer with Eddie Fisher back in the uh, in the fifties. He was on the uh, Coke Time with Eddie Fisher uh, on the show there, and uh, so, so far. Uh, none of us or my children, I'm waiting to see if one of them picked up the talent there. So we're, we're waiting to see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, you've had so much success. Do you have a, I mean, you've done so many uh, venues here. You've sang in, so, in front of so many people. Do you have one that, that's near and dear to your heart? Is there a favorite performance that you've had over the years here? Um, it's really hard to measure a performance on an aircraft carrier in the Persian Gulf with a performance at the White House or Yankee Stadium compared to um, a packed theater somewhere. One of my favorite venues, and I've played Vegas for 20 years in all of the major showrooms uh, and lounges because it was I had some very magic moments further. I'm playing piano bar at the Tropicana in the Atrium Lounge or, uh, or at Caesars Palace opening up for Paul Anka. I think there's a place in Tulsa, Oklahoma at the Hard Rock called The Joint. It's one of the most fabulous inside arenas and, and theaters, it's plush, it's beautiful, and uh, and they, they make every artist feel perfectly comfortable, they're technology smart, and, and that's a favorite venue of mine. But if you're going to talk about um, performing outdoors, you know, it could be anywhere. There, there's, uh, there's places you can put 25,000 people in it, like at Bonnaroo here in Tennessee, uh, or some of the, the Rolling Thunder shows in, uh, in Arizona and Minnesota. But it just depends, you know, if you, if you feel like you're reaching the public and you're entertaining them, for me, that's more important. But I do like to do artistic shows with small audiences, like, let's say, James Taylor, uh, because I consider myself sort of contemporary in country music. So it's, it's hard to, to say which venue I might like, but I have a lot of favorites. Yeah, and you've been crushing it for so long. What kind of goals or plans here do you have for the future? What's next for you? Um... I've outlived the copyright at Universal with all of the music that I wrote over the past 35 years. I'm releasing a 20-song CD later this year uh, of some re-recorded songs and some brand-new songs. And I'm, re I'm doing that because I will own the copyrights and the master's recordings for the first time in my life. And, you know, if people win the American Idol, you know that they have to sign a contract. They sign over for 10 years to American Idol. They own most of everything they get. And so I've been blessed to be able to keep, to keep singing and now the product that I'll release that will be uniquely mine uh, will also pay off revenue for me. So I have that in the works. My wife and I'll probably travel a little more than uh, than we have in the past. We, as I said, we still have a kid in college for two more years. When Dalton gets his Ph.D. at Vanderbilt, uh, he may move to a different kind of location and be a financial consultant. So we're just sort of waiting to see what, what the world will bring us. 
but uh, I have no fear about the future, and uh, and I have no uh, no desire to quit what I do. Yeah, I love that philosophy. All right, last thing I'm going to hit you with here, Lee. I love to ask all the dads I get on the podcast, what type of advice do you have for that new father or for that about-to-be dad who's out there listening? Well, we're all going to have the same challenge as fathers. We are, number one, supposed to be the breadwinner. Now, in many families, the women actually are the breadwinner, but I'd say it's still 80% men that have the more lucrative job because they plan for that. Women sort of the planners for the family. I, they know they're probably going to have children. They want to establish a secure location for their family. So it's a different kind of way to look at it. So for a guy, you want to make sure that you balance family and don't miss the early years because as the kids grow up, you only have one shot at that. And and when you see your little kids, you know, doing well in school and and you hear their voice, Daddy, Daddy, hi, how are you? Welcome home, you know, and you give that, that you know, don't miss those opportunities, even though work may be challenging and you're going to have to give up some sleep to do all of the things that kids demand from you as they get older through grammar school and junior high school and high school. You're still going to reap the rewards of showing them the love and the dedication because that's the way you spell um, uh, uh, L-O-V-E, you spell it T-I-M-E. Yeah, very well said. I love the message. This has been a lot of fun for me. i got to say, Lee Greenwood, you're a first-class father, and thank you so much for giving me a few minutes of your time on First Class Fatherhood. Awesome. Thank you, man. Let's go, dads. It's the best time of the year to bring your kids to the ball game, and First Class Fatherhood listeners can now save $20 off their ticket purchase. The NFL is in full swing. The NBA and the NHL are now underway. Buy your tickets on SeatGeek.com and use my promo code FIRSTCLASS. That's one word, FIRSTCLASS, and you're going to save 20 bucks off your tickets. Nothing beats the experience of taking your kids to the game, and now you can go with an extra $20 in your pocket. Visit SeatGeek.com and use the promo code FIRSTCLASS. Fatherhood is the best seat in the house. All right, and joining me now are First Class Parents. He is known as the Wolf of Wall Street. She is the one who has guided him into a new motivational speaking career. It is a big pleasure for me to say Anne and Jordan Belfort. Welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Thank you. Perfect. All right, let's start here. How many kids do you guys have and how old are they? So, uh, together we have three. And one of them is 26, 24. And 22. And 22. Well, actually, part is, yeah, 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 wow. Yeah. What a good job. Right. <laughs> Very cool. What type of sports or activities were they all into growing up? Every Well, let's see. Uh, Carter was mainly soccer. He didn't have a choice. I think he was uh, he was really pushed into soccer, soccer, soccer. <laughs> played volleyball, too. And volley- oh, he's, and then an he amazing, got volleyball. he's an amazing soccer yeah. player. Um, my son played uh, soccer, baseball, water polo, basketball. Yeah. Um, I don't – he played everything. Yeah. And then Chandler played Chandler soccer started. and volleyball. And so volleyball really well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, all the kids are really good athletes. Okay. Yeah, very good. Let me see uh, if you could just take a minute here to hit my listeners, guys, with a little bit about your background. You want to start with you, Ann? Oh, my background, what I do, I wrangle Jordan. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a full-time job. Uh, before I met Jordan, I was a single mother, and I worked in mortgages. And um, after Jordan, uh, the real work started. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. Right. So, um, um, my background, everyone pretty much knows, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah but um, maybe for the one or two people on the planet who are unsure. 
Um, well, I was born in New York City, right? And then um, I was an entrepreneur from a very young age. Everything from you know, I was the kid with the lemonade stand and, and you know, newspaper route. And then eventually I, you know, started a brokerage firm when I was very young. Uh, and it became massive. I made a ton of money, made a lot of mistakes along the way. Uh, it became a movie, The Wolf of Wall Street, where, um, you know, at the end I ended up going to jail. And then I, along the way, though, I built a, a system for training salesmen that really was incredible and uh, empowered people. So that really lived on. And eventually I circled back and focused on ethical persuasion and built a business around that, um, which obviously was, uh, you know, very easy to do in the wake of the movie, but even before that was pretty easy. But to become a global brand, then there we are. Yeah, it's an inspiring story, Jordan, especially the way you've been able to turn it around and find a way to provide so much service to other people now with what you do. It's it's really remarkable. And and how old were how old were you, Jordan, when you first became a father? And how did becoming a dad kind of change your perspective on life? It was my early thirties. Uh, I think thirty thirty um, one when I became a dad officially. Um, it was my at that time. You know, I looked at my daughter as the only pure thing in my life, pretty much. So, you know, everything I had at that time was based on money, even my marriage. I mean, you know, it was like all based on on sort of, uh, sort of, you know, I wouldn't just say all greed and fueled, but just a wild, over the top lifestyle. It had all been somewhat corrupted. And then my daughter came into the world, and she was this perfect little creature. And I just, you know, I think I directed a lot of my love and and used her to maintain some of my sanity as well by projecting stuff onto her. And, uh, and thankfully she turned out amazing. I mean, you know, she just graduated from NYU, grad school, and she's just always been a great kid, you know? She is amazing. She's amazing. Yeah. yeah well said. Yeah. And, 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 Anne, I mean, I have a lot of, um, I have a lot of different, you know, single parents and, and, and remarried parents on the show here. And one of the things that a lot of times they're a little apprehensive about is introducing their children to a new potential spouse. So when did you feel comfortable introducing your son to Jordan? Uh, my son's an interesting character as far as that he was always a little uh, old for his age. Uh, he was very comfortable meeting anyone. I, I didn't really date much, but he's the one that actually encouraged me to date Jordan. He was tired of his mom I'm going through life alone. He was worried about me at 10, but he really wanted me to have someone to share my life with, so he basically forced Jordan on me. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, very cool. Who would you say uh, between the two of you there, who's the bigger disciplinarian when it comes to disciplining? <laughs> I am. Um, <laughs> There's not even a contest. <laughs> Jordan is the easiest touch there ever was. I was known as probably one of the toughest moms in yeah. our whole town. Yeah, yeah, and disciplinary. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm curious to ask you this, Jordan, because, I mean, I drive Uber on the weekends here, and it's mostly uh, kids that are in college, and they seem to have, like, no clue what they plan on doing with their marine biology degrees or their philosophy degrees, and it seems like right now is the best age for the entrepreneur and, and to be able to, you know, be your own boss. So, uh, in your opinion, like, is college necessary to succeed in today's world? No, no. I think college is a total scam. And I, I'm, I'm totally – and now, that being said, the people like my daughter who wants to get a degree and use that degree, um, you know, she's a psychologist and she's going to practice it and she's has a master's. Uh, or if someone wants to be a doctor or a lawyer, yeah, there are certain, you know, very defined engineer where there's certain formal training. But I would say outside that 5 or no. 10% of people, it's the biggest waste of time and scam in the world. All they do is they indoctrinate people to an ultra-liberal way of thinking. They turn them into soft marshmallows. And frankly, it's also a monetary scam because they pump up the price of college by allowing people to borrow massive amounts of money, which leaves people saddled with student debt, and they have no skill set to then pay back that and money. No it's a total, total, total scam, college. Biggest scam ever. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I love the messages that you put out there, too, about investing in yourself. And personal development is something that I think should probably be introduced at the grade school level, I think, yeah. because it seems like kids are coming out with no idea how to, you know, it, it, it build themselves up and market themselves into the, into the marketplace to try to bring some value to it. Well, well gender studies is a tricky one to monetize. You know, I honestly, the, the, I, I really, at this point, it looks to me like the fact that literally the old, you know, we used to have, like, back in the McCarthy days, it was like the communist scare. They've actually won. They've actually infiltrated the institutions of education, the ultra-liberal leftist, literally communist way. I think it's really in there right now, and they've literally taken over the institutions of learning and, and, and media, and it's destroying our country. I really do. I think it's destroying the country, and, and I fear for my kids because of that. I really do. Yeah, and one of the things I talk about uh, on the podcast a lot, Jordan, is, is that I feel that the fatherless crisis is playing a big role in this as well. We have a, too many kids growing up in, in this country without a father in the home. Yeah, and, and, yeah. That's, and that's why I think it's so important. Like I say, you take on how has it been the, um, the experience of the role for you playing uh, as, as far as being the stepdad? Well, I mean, Bowen and I are really, he's like my own, I call him my own, so I don't distinguish him between my own kids and, and you know, Bowen. He's like, much, I'm quite close with Bowen just because I, I spend time. Bowen works with me, so I see him every single day. But I, I think there's, like, you know, listen, I think it's, yes, it's important to have a father in the home. But that being said, you know, Anne raised Bowen by herself and took on both roles and did an amazing job. I don't think it's just that. I mean, I, don't, I, I think that being a father is, is crucial, yes, obviously in a perfect world. But that being said, there's a lot of amazing kids out there that were raised by single moms. I don't think that's the, the, the linchpin about what's going on. There's a lot more going on than just that. I think it's more morality and family values and structure and the parents willing to be parents. I never was shied away from being a parent and being a tough parent. And I think uh, that's where the breakdown is. Parents are absent as parents, whether they're together or separate. Yeah, very well said. And I think I think another thing that plays into this, too, is the technology. There's a big gap between a lot of the parents today and the, and the way their kids are using the technology. So how have you guys kind of uh, monitored or handled, you know, technology, social media, and all that stuff with your kids? Fortunately, I ain't got lucky. We missed that and dodged that boat because they were, by the time oh, social I media. Totally was, I totally had all my sons pass. No, 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 but, 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 <laughs> I don't know, but I'm talking when they were very young, though. They did, it didn't exist. So we missed the real ways of it, you know. Yeah. But kids now five and six and eight on social, you know, like ten. Now, social media, the time social media really came around, um, Bone was as young as probably fifteen or six, sixteen, maybe. And he was kind of against. And he was kind of yeah. And so it didn't really, I mean, impact um, us in terms of like I understand what you're saying. That there's just you know the parents have no idea what the kids are even saying or how to even access what they're saying online. There's all these. I did. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, again, it didn't really matter as much. It's very different now than it yeah. was when Bone was. Like, but I think monitoring it is important. I don't think yeah. you should, I don't think parents should be ashamed for kids are living under your roof to have their passwords and monitor what they do. If they want to have autonomy, they can move out. Well, there's no difference to my dad. You know, in my house when I grew up, it was you know no closed doors. Mm -hmm. You couldn't lock your door until you were the next one. I was seventeen. That changed. Sixteen. But before that, as I was you know, an adolescent, you know, what's the difference between a, low, a closed or locked door and a and a password that you don't access to? It's very mm -hmm. similar, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, and of course, you know, the movie Wolf of Wall Street was a huge success. Um, and, and a lot of kids, you know, a lot of you know, teenage guys that they're interested in in pursuing a career, you know, on Wall Street, getting into the stock market game. What advice do you have, Jordan, uh, for the parents of those kids that are looking to get into the game? I don't think there's anything wrong with um, 
you know, someone get, having a career in banking or Wall Street, however you want to refer to that. But I, I don't think that kids look at the movie and just think about Wall Street. I think they think about success. I, I don't think there's a really, oh, I want to be a stockbroker. I mean, I, th- I think it's much broader than that. I think people look at the movie and they, and they get a say. Most people, I think, get a, a really good takeaway that they feel empowered by it and also see the mistakes that I made. So they want to emulate the good stuff and not repeat the bad stuff. Um, obviously, there's always a couple of nuts in there that want to, I want to just take drugs and go wild, right? I mean, that's, you know, that's a, that person would have done that anyway. Um, but I, I think that the big thing is that it's about success. I don't think it's. What do you think? You think it's Wall Street or it's more success? In I think it's success. Yeah. I think people. I think people. That go, there's a glamour of Wall Street, and it, maybe it makes it seem easier to be successful in Wall Street, but it's work wherever you. Yeah, go. I think it's. Yeah, it's not just Wall Street. And I think they realize the hours they have to put in if they really want to be successful in Wall Street, just like anything else. Yeah, that seems to be the key with success all the way around. And now, have have all your kids seen the movie, and what's been their response to it? Yeah, well, I mean, they've all seen it. I mean, they. I think they, they love it, and. Um, they obviously they know they know which parts are fictional, which parts are real. So. But it's also their dad. There's a bit of an eye roll there because they don't see him as that guy. It's their goofy dad. So you know they you know <laughs> it's just a little bit of I can't you know when you hear about your parents when they were younger, it's um they have a little more of that response to it. Well, my 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 kids you know they all see my life the way it is today, and they and they see the life that I've built in the last ten years. I think that if I would not have done that. If that would have been the end of my story right there, I don't think it would be a bit of very, very good thing for my kids to see. Like, that's how their dad went down. But I think my kids, what they've seen is that the movie ended, and then I ended up building a life even, you know, more amazing and, and pure and totally pure this time. So I think that they look at it as empowering, that their dad was this amazing comeback guy. And, and, and that's, that's, I think, the big thing. I think the gift I gave my kids was being honest about the mistakes I made and then also going out there and rebuilding my life in a, in a far better fashion. That's an example not just to my kids, but to any, you know, teenager or anyone for that matter. Yeah, and it seems to be that's where the true success lies when we start taking ownership and responsibility for our own lives. It seems like today's culture it seems to be a blaming, you know, the economy and the politics and, and everybody else but, but uh, themselves here for yeah, uh, where their life is ending up. Yeah, that's, that's a liberal mentality that's been taught to kids in school, that there's a, always, you know, it's, they're looking, people are looking for handouts or safe spaces, and I, it's just absolutely. And by the way, just, you know, I don't even think people really believe I think this is a complete, um, it's a fraud by the media that, that they push this on us. They try to divide everybody. I think people are smarter than that. I think that people are realizing the media is completely full of shit. Um, and they're putting a false narrative meant to divide everyone into two groups, liberals against conservatives. I'm not liberal. I'm not conservative. I'm not, I'm, I have my own views that, that cross both. I'm, I'm the most socially liberal person you're meeting, fiscally conservative. I'm not in the, I'm not in the box, and uh, my daughter's liberal, and we get along great. The media is trying to divide everybody and make it, make it almost a war to, to, because they don't want to grab power. That's what's going on. So I'm very concerned right now. I, I, mean, I think it's very, very dangerous, you know. Yeah, I, I had a chance. I, I had the opportunity to see it firsthand. I was able to get a, a press pass for a week at the White House. I was trying to get an interview with President Trump for the podcast, and I, I got to see it. And it's uh, it was very eye-opening to spend a week with the White House correspondent to see what exactly goes on there. And you're 100% yeah. right. It's a, it's, it's a total uh, scam job what's going on here. The New York Times has become a rag. <laughs> They're a rag. They've become a joke, and, and everyone knows it. It's like, what do you say now? And what was once considered the most 
revered thing. So listen, get, getting back to parenthood, though, what does that mean for you as a parent? I think that, well, you have to make sure, my kids are grown now, and they, you know, they are what they are at this point. Obviously, I'm there to guide them when they ask, but I think for younger kids and parents who have younger kids, I think you have to really, um, it's up to you to, to as a parent to really, you know, instill in your, in your kid that they need to make, they can't believe the, the nonsense they read after all the stuff they hear in school now even. No, so, they need to be empowered. Yeah. So all we're doing is disempowering everyone. They feel like they are victims of everything, and it's up to the parents to empower their children that they have uh, control over their lives and their happiness and their choices, and um, whatever situation they find themselves in, they are empowered to make a difference. Okay, yeah. well, one, one example of this is like with Bowen. We were in a meeting here about a, a month ago, and one of the employees here was complaining about that they didn't they, that one of the relationships we had with a vendor and how they were wasting their time and it was blah blah. And Bowen looked at the girl and says, "You know what? It's your fault. It's, it's up to you to what you're going to make a decision. What you're going to allow someone to do to you or not? Take ownership of your partner." And I was so proud of my son because he's like, that, "That's the sort of thinking that of taking ownership and not saying the world happens to me." But I'm the one that dictates what happens in the world around me, and through my actions, I can make a difference. So you know, I think my my kids really got that, and uh, I think it's probably one of the most important things you can instill in your kids outside of unconditional love, probably. You know? Yeah, very well said. Yeah, and and I fell into this myself. I mean, my father was a used car salesman in the Bronx, and I grew up, you know, with, with the wrong angle on life, trying to hustle everybody and, and scam everybody. I ran into some drug and alcohol issues myself, and then. What really turned it around was my when I started to change my philosophy, and, and a lot of it came through uh, reading. I, I fell into, in love with reading, and I started to read guys like Napoleon Hill and um, James Allen and stuff like that. Well, was there anything in particular, uh, Jordan, for you as far as um, what happened to turn you around from uh, uh, the life that you were living uh, to a life of service that you have now? Okay. Well, I think so that – well, num- number one, I think that I obviously I you know, Napoleon Hill, you know, Thinking Grow Rich was the, was the first book I read that really um, opened my eyes to a lot of things, and I was already doing it too. I was you know had a lot of uh, I was born with a certain mindset. I was I have a certain way of thinking. I think everyone has their own sort of genetic predisposition. Mine was very much weighted towards entrepreneurship and stuff like that. Um, I, and I was raised really well. I, I didn't have to become something new. I had to return to what I was before I went in this wild journey. As I was raised well, I didn't intend on doing anything. You said you were raised by your dad, and I get that, and I respect the fact that you can identify that your dad probably didn't instill the best values in you, and then you learned through your own mistakes and you know through reading and, and self you know self um, you know self improvement, and you got yourself into the person you are today. Right? I didn't have that. I had amazing parents. My parents instilled all the right morals in me almost to a, to a detriment because some of them were disempowering financially, but in terms of actual morality and ethics, I didn't have to be um, sort of become something I wasn't raised. I was raised to be a good kid. I just took kind of a, a, a left turn in Albuquerque, so to speak. And then once I went to jail, my children, my love for my children really, you know, the whole thing of, 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 of wanting to be a role model for them, that was a big part of it for sure. What do you think, Ann? Yes. Ann thinks yes. <laughs> well, yeah, listen, it, it, it's an amazing what you've done, and I'm so glad to see that there's people like you on social media because it, it, it's filled with so much garbage that's on there. And I don't even understand the point of it if you're not on there to try to sell something or to promote something or to bring some good value. Yeah, I would not be on there. I agree with you a thousand. I would not be on there if it wasn't for business. No way. Any so 
social media accounts. I started this podcast a year and a half ago, and I never had any social media accounts until I started it. And uh, I'm I, still trying to figure it all out. But uh, what type of very, fascinates me? Yes, it's a very um, and looks at it like a science project. Yeah, I just I like to watch who does what, why, all that. I mean, I've had some of the other entrepreneurs like Be- uh, Bedros Koulian on the show and uh, Grant Cardone and them guys too. And they, it's just they they say too that it's it's an addiction like the social media stuff. It's just they have that same performance of like dopamine in the brain when they're searching for their likes and all that stuff. So it becomes I, very habit forming. It does for a certain personality type. I think the people who need that outside validation, of course, it becomes like dopamine. You need that extra hit. For people who are fulfilled in every part of their life, I think they can look at it kind of like a joke or for entertainment. Yeah, but I, they could really care less. How many I never, I never look at life. Yeah. I never look at anything like that at all. I, 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 I use it. Personality. I part. use it strictly. If Bowen runs all social media, I, 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 I honestly, I never go on. It's just Bowen posts everything. He tells me what to do. Do this. Do that. He has a very good sense of what people <laughs> want to hear. You know. I'm I, I, I'm I'm not too old for this stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of good careers in it for people that know how to use it the right way. It's amazing it what's possible on there. It does. Yeah. Oh, what What's next for you guys here? What kind of goals or plans do you have for the future? I think I think that you know we're we're, we're building a really solid business here, and you know um, you know a lot of business to business sales, and you know teaching people you know companies persuasion and how to close at a higher level and. and B to C as well, um, but I think for Android, it's really more. Oh, my goal is to get Jordan's voice out there more. Here's yeah. the thing: he's a brilliant businessman, but I don't think people realize that he's just plain old brilliant, and that he can speak on any subject. Sometimes a lot too long, <laughs> but he, he has a he, he's a wonderful person to hear from, and I'd like to have his voice be uh, one of the ones we're hearing more of rather than the talking heads that everyone's being forced to listen to who really don't have any intelligence or basis for their opinions or what they're spouting. Yeah, I would love to see that as well because I think his voice is definitely needed right now in our country more than ever. Just his influence on his ideology on, on how to become successful is definitely a voice that's needed. Yeah. Oh, and on every on every subject. Let me tell you, you can ask him about any subject, and he has the backup, the facts, all in his head to support everything he says. He's not just one of these people who's talking from opinion. It's from re- well-researched and um, well-thought-out uh, process that goes on super quick in his head. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Last thing I want to hit you guys here with, I love to ask all the parents that I get on the podcast. I'll start with you, Ann, here. Uh, What type of advice do you have for that new or about-to-be parent that's out there listening? Uh, Number one, um, you chose to bring this child into the world, so you owe them everything. If you don't get to go out all the time or sleep all the time, you owe that to your child. You cannot love them too much. They cannot manipulate you until they're about six to eight months, and then you should have discipline as well, but never with, an, with the, the absence of love. Love should come first, unconditional love, but with structure. But you owe them. And I'm really tired of seeing parents trying to be selfish and say, i got to prove to my kid you know, how you live life for yourself. No, sorry, then you shouldn't have had a child. Yeah, very well said. Jordan, what kind of advice do you have for that new or about-to-be parent that's out there listening? I think that... Um the one thing that my dad and my mom, for that matter, instilled in me that I think a lot of parents don't do is I always knew that I was loved unconditionally. I never, ever had a day that went by in my life to this very day. My dad passed away last week, 
and um, on, on, to the grave. There was never one day in his entire life where I didn't know, without even having to question, he loved me unconditionally, same with my mom. But I think that is something uh, that I've instilled in my own kids, and they know that for sure. And I think that parents who don't do that are really damaging their own kids in terms of self-esteem um, and just their own, you know, compass of the world when you're not, you don't have that sort of that that rock of to know that your parents truly love you. I think it's really dangerous. I agree. Yeah, very well said. I love the message. This has been an honor for me. I got to say, Ann and Jordan, you guys are first class parents all the way. And thank you so much for giving me a few minutes of your time thank on you. first class fatherhood. Thanks. Take care. All right. Joining me now, first class father Matt Roloff. Welcome to first class fatherhood. Well, thank you, Alex, for having me. All right, let's start here. How many kids do you have, and how old are they? I've got four kids, and uh, let's see. We've got, I've got my oldest are twins, and so they're going to be uh, 27 years old, both fathers themselves. And uh, then I have a daughter who's 25, Molly, and then my youngest, Jacob, is 22. Okay, very cool. What type of sports or activities were they all into growing up? Well, they're pretty much all into, into soccer. Um, I, tr- I, I was a wrestler in high school, so I tried to get them all into re- – all the boys, at least, into wrestling at a young age. But uh, they all did it for one season. I thought they were all destined to be champion wrestlers, but they decided that soccer was, uh, was more interesting to them, so they switched to soccer, and uh, I flowed with that. Yeah, that soccer's become popular. My kids gravitated to that early on, and I never really knew much about the game, but that, that sport has definitely taken over for sure. Yeah, no doubt about that. Um, all right, Matt, please, just take a minute here to hit my listeners with a little bit about your background and what you do. Uh, let's see. I started off as a – I was a computer programmer and uh, in my early after high school. I was a computer programmer and uh, then went into computer sales, software sales, worked for some large companies um, all over the world, really. And then uh, and then somewhere along the line, I got into farming. And so now I'm a, I'm a pumpkin farmer. I grow pumpkins, and we have a – we have a television show that we do called Little People Big World. So when that's not keeping me busy, I'm busy uh, maintaining the farm. And I have a number of other little businesses. I sell accessibility uh, uh, kits into hotels and, um, um, and, and, and various other products into grocery stores. I actually have a children's book. I know you're a big uh, avid reader to your kids. So I've, I've built a, a little book uh, called Little Lucy Big Race for, um, for kids to read. Um, and so I've, I've got to go into all kinds of different things. Yeah, you've had an amazing journey, Matt. And when did fatherhood come into this picture for you? How old were you when you first became a dad, and how did becoming a dad kind of change your perspective on life? Well, let's see. I, I got married. I was 24, and uh, then, let's see, I probably was a year and a half. It wasn't lo- much longer, you know, with the, and my wife at the time, Amy, um, got pregnant with the twins. So I must have been about 25. I'm guessing I'd have to go back through the math, but probably about 25 years old when I had the twin boys. And, uh, oh, yeah, it was a radical change. I mean, I had to you really go from sort of being more self-centered and, and everything's about, you know, my career and that, to really being uh, the, the custodial of, you know, precious little lives and the responsibility is, is quite stunning, you know. And so when you make that first step off, especially in my case where we had two of them uh, and, you know, one of them was a little person like myself um, and one of them was average size. So my wife and I at the time uh, were little people. We had dwarfism and one of our twins had dwarfism 
And then the other one was uh, a perfectly average, you know, I guess we used the word normal or we couldn't use the word, you know, kid. Um, and so it, we, we had our hands full at, back in the days. And Amy was very small, so she had to, you know, carry uh, carry these kids first uh, inside of her. And, and that was a, quite a, you know, quite a feat uh accomplishment physical accomplishment and then uh, after they were born you know between the two of us having to you know let the kids around and get all the diapers changed uh, it really did <laughs> it revolutionized our our perspective and our life and and it continues to do so today yeah well said um what was the what was sort of the genesis of the whole little people big world how did that all come about and how, what were some of the challenges of being you know on reality tv while being a dad well, you know, one of the things I, I, you know, I have quite a little, my form of disability or form of dwarfism, I should say, is, is uh, pretty physically limiting. You know, I'm on crutches and um, and uh, what have you. So there was going to be some sports and some activities that I wasn't going to be able to do with the kids. And uh, uh, I knew that it was going to be a little harder for me to be competitive with them on soccer. I mean, I could kind of swing my leg and kick a ball a little bit, which I did. But, but I did have sort of a creative bit to myself. So I set out when uh, the kids were first born, the twins. In fact, they weren't even born yet when I said, one thing I can do very well is I can, I can build, I can build stuff. Um, and so, you know, tree houses and, and go-karts and forts and things like that. So I set out uh, in my, you know, time after work, uh, building uh, very elaborate structures and what have you. And, you know, sometimes I'd hire high school kids to help me. You know, sometimes I'd do a lot of it, you know, on my hands and knees. Um, and uh, I built really cool playgrounds for the kids. And um, it, it triggered their imagination and uh, helped, you know, helped me be creatively, have a creative outlet. And that's what caught the attention of producers, um, to, to develop the show Little People, Big World. So the producers uh, came along and, and said, this is pretty interesting that this guy that can barely walk, you know, is building a pirate ship in his backyard, you know. And uh, that um, was the genesis of the Little People. So that's just kind of the Reader's Digest version of, the, of how the show started. Yeah, very cool. And, and Do you ever look back at any of the episodes and then learn a little something, like see something on, on the film that yeah, about yourself that you didn't necessarily like and then you made a change or a correction after seeing it? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, that happens uh, frequently, especially in the early days. Uh, I used to tell people everybody should have a, a, you know, a video camera in the corner of their room and watch how they behave in certain circumstances, and you might grow up a little bit. And uh, certainly it happened uh, – with us, we'd see things on uh, on the TV, you know, and kind of be mortified at how we handled this particular situation and what have you. So, you know, I don't like to say, oh, the TV, you know, process of being on TV changed me or anybody else. But there's there's no doubt that when you see yourself, uh, you know, we have, you know, literally thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of television uh, that's been created over the last 14 years. Um, and, um, you know, n now, I, now I look at it and it's more of a cringe, you know, than it is hiding the bedroom underneath the, uh, you know, underneath the bed, um, more about that than it is. But, but there was er the early days that definitely, uh, try to, you know, learn about, you know, do some self-reflection. Yeah, and I think it's kind of like uh, the sports, uh, pro sports athletes go through that when they have to go and watch the film. A lot of them want to hide in the in the closet while they're watching some of the things because the camera doesn't lie. One of the things now is the is the technology. So many people post stuff, and it's all out there. So we all have kind of more access to everybody's um, individual lives. 
how, how have you handled any of that stuff? Like, how have you handled social media and technology and that type of stuff with your kids? Well, um, it, it, that's been quite a – that's a great question. It's been quite a journey. We're still figuring it out. Probably the way I would respond to it and spend, spend the time talking about it is, is having four kids, and they're kind of going through um, – you know, the process of learning how to how to have thick skin and people are going to, you know, everything they do, I, you know, I've had to sit the kids down and say, you guys, everything you do and you say on your social media is going to get scrutinized and, 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 and picked apart and yelled at. So that was a, t- that's a tough way to grow up, you know, especially for our youngest, Jacob, you know, he was very young and didn't have all the tools in place. And so we spent a lot of time coaching the kids to, you know, be super careful about, you know, what you say and what you do and your actions because you're you're going to get um, – it's going to – you're going to be remembered by some of this stuff. And, um, you know, there's big rewards that come uh, with being in the reality TV business, but there's also, um, you know, uh, challenges, and, and that's one of them right there. So I, I be, you know, have always – I've been an adult, you know, during the whole filming process, so I was able to – and pretty thick skin, you know, I've been teased my entire life uh, – one way or another, stared at and looked at, and you know, because of my, you know, stature. Um, so it wasn't a big, big stretch to go from being ridiculed and what have you. But you know, people, uh, you know, there's, there's most of the time people are wonderful. There, there's what I call the one percent. I have a thing in our family we call it the one percent, and one percent means it's the, and it might be a little more than one percent, but that, that's the, that's the segment of society that's just always going to be mean and ornery and, and they're sour and they're jealous and they, you know, aren't feeling good about themselves or insecure. And we really, we can't fix everybody, you know, um, it's, it's the people, you know, that can, you can reach and that you can um, teach and you can influence, you know, those are the ones that matter. And, you know, the, the 1% that are just going to be, you know, um, you know, <laughs> mean and ornery no matter what you do, um, you, you just have to you just have to let that roll off your back um, and not not uh, get you down. Yeah, very well said. That's an awesome way to approach it. Um, what, what about like how about disciplining the kids, Matt? Has them being sort of famous with the reality TV and very well recognized has that made it any more complicated to discipline the kids? How do you kind of handle discipline as a father? Unbelievably more complicated. Uh, we could spend a whole podcast on that one. It's very difficult. For for one, you, you, it's it's challenging to try to discipline your kids uh, and yell at them when when the cameras are rolling. So, um, which was considerably amount of time. So my kids would learn how to do things that you know would stimulate the the drama of the show. You know, just naturally, the producers are whispering in their ear, "Hey, go." Uh, you know, go, you know, kick your dad in the shin or go, don't take that, you know, dinner plate back to the table so that your dad can get mad. We want to see what that looks like. So, you know, there's some of that kind of stuff that's going on. And so I would, for example, not know the difference between is, is my kid, one of my kids uh, doing it just to to do a wink, wink at one of the producers, or is he really being defiant? Um, and, you know, being a little person, it, uh, to start with, is dif- difficult. Think about think about disciplining when your six-year-old is, you know, a head, a head taller than you. You know, that's, a, that's something to think about, right? And uh, so I had to just try my best to, um, you know, be creative and, and, uh, and, you know, discipline from a perspective of respect, make sure that they understood that when I was serious, I was serious. Um, you know, we we raised our kids to be independent and to be individuals, and we wanted this. You know, even though we 
didn't always like some of their choices. We've tried to sit them down and talk with them about those choices. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, we, I think we tried to um, let them be who they were going to be uh, and not um, try to turn them into mini-me's. You know, in other words, I didn't want my kids to necessarily be just like me. I want them to be their own people with their own opinions and thoughts. And that's kind of how my folks raised me. And um, uh, so I, I think that's an important message for parents is that there's a, there's a fine line in there and everybody's got to figure their own line out. Yeah, it's one of the cool, unique things about fatherhood. There's billions of us on the planet, but until you really experience it, uh, you really don't understand it. And it's, it's one of those unique things in life, you know. Yeah, that's very, um, very well said. Um, yeah, and also now you went through a divorce, which was highly publicized. And divorces, I mean, they're very hard for any family, no matter what scenario you're in. But yours is scaled up quite a bit because it's in the media. It's in front of millions of people. Uh, so what kind of effect did that have on the kids, and, and what kind of advice could you give to a dad out there maybe that's just in the beginning process of this whole divorce thing? Well, I'll kind of start answering that by saying that my advice to other dads getting ready to go is definitely, definitely keep the kids out of it, and we, we did that. We really, you know, our and our, we were fortunate and our kids didn't probe and want to know, you know, the details. Um, they... Um, you know, they knew that their mom and I were, you know, struggling and, um, you know, moving in different directions, I think. Um, but we didn't drag them in. We very rarely argued in front of them. Um, you know, in fact, I don't think we ever argued really in front of them. I I sort of refused to raise my voice and always kept a, kept my voice uh, calm and as possible. And, um, you know, we had, you know, uh, our, our serious discussions outside the ears of the kids. Um, and I think they liked it. They appreciated that. Um, and we still respect each other. I, you know, my ex-wife Amy and I can still get in a room or go to a, a, a granddaughter's birthday or, you know, we can still do things together without um, it being, uh, you know, we don't, we try not to let there be tension in the room. I mean, it doesn't always work. It's really much easier to say than, than to do. But I think we really practice the idea of, Hey, the tension is for when the cameras are rolling and we're getting paid for it. You know, <laughs> the real life, we have to not have that uh, in the room. And we have to, um, when the cameras aren't rolling, we have to really try to, uh, and, and that's the camera component to our life has made it extra complicated for what I'm describing. I mean, there, you know, I think Amy and I had to work really hard to, to not, to realize, hey, there's no cameras rolling. We don't need to, we, we can be calm. We can be civil, you know. Um, and uh, so making that stink was an extra layer of difficulty. But but getting a divorce, you know, while cameras are following you was indeed very difficult. Yeah, and it's awesome that you guys are doing it, you know, what's best for the kids. I, mean, I think so many uh, parents do make that mistake of dragging them into it and making them a whole part of it. And you mentioned there your granddaughter. What has the experience of becoming a grandfather been like to you in comparison to fatherhood itself? Well, <laughs> I am enjoying, I don't want to say I'm enjoying uh, grandparenthood more because I certainly enjoyed um, uh, being just a father and, and raising the kids. I, I do think, though, I was more distracted by work and my ambitions and my, you know, drive um, businesses and things. So even though, you know, there were times when I thought I was being a great father because I was always at home and tentative, you know, there were times when I was chasing my own um you know, interest and, and not stopping and, and saying, you know, um, for example, one of my kids didn't like to build forts. He, the three of them loved it. And then the youngest, just, he just wasn't into forts, you know? 
And I, I pushed on that for a few years. And, you know, not only did I try to get them into wrestling, but try to get them into thing. And, and at some point, you try to encourage your kid to be, uh, you know, one of your kids to, to be a, into a certain uh, hobby or sport or whatever. And it, it's difficult to know when to say, hey, that's enough. Now, what, what, let's sit down. What are you interested in? How can I not? I didn't always make those uh, those turns uh, quick enough and, and, and sharp enough, you know, because I was trying to influence them in a certain direction. With the grandkids, I am super double, triple, quadruple committed to understanding what they like and following them around. So I, I follow my little grandson around like a little puppy dog looking for what he puts his hands on, what he wants to do is whether he, you know, if he, he loves to read or color, you know, so I, I like doing those activities and I'm not, um, you know, I like Hot Wheels. I did get him a Hot Wheel track and I, but I don't pull it out unless he pulls it out, you know. Um, so the, you learn, you get older and you get wiser. And I think that's happened with me and I, I'm not going to make the same mistakes with my grandkids as I've made with my, with my own kids. Um, but um, th- I think that, you know, just, I, I'm enjoying uh, grand. Is it grandpa Ness? I don't know what you how you word that, but <laughs> I'm enjoying it immensely. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, do, do the kids, do they enjoy uh, the whole process of the show? Have any of them ever uh, spoken out and saying, like, hey, they, they don't want to be a part of it anymore? Do they watch the show, and, and do they get an enjoyment out of it, or is now is it just such a normal part of their life they don't even think twice about it? Well, I, I would say everybody in our family has taken their turns loving doing the show and hating during the show, and it's not always at the same time. <laughs> so we have been, the answer to that is all over the map. Uh, right now, though, you know, my youngest dropped out of the show quite a few years ago. He just decided that he did not, you know, like the process of the show and, and, and the storylines that were drawn up. And so he, you know, um, slightly less than gracefully, you know, announced that he was going to, you know, not be part of the show anymore. And we um, allowed him to do that and said, that's fine. And so the, the show did go on um, and he's still very much part of family. In fact, he lives still in, in one of our guest uh, quarters there on the farm. We see him every day. People, well, why does he, doesn't anybody ever talk to Jacob? <laughs> we talk to him every single day. It's just that he doesn't want to be on the camera. So the cameras, you know, he's either off traveling when the cameras are there or we point him in a different direction than where he is. Often he'll be right in the room with us when the cameras are there, but they, they just don't, they don't feature him and he's happy with that. And, um, he uh, enjoys it. And then my one of my twin boys um, this last year, him and his wife made the decision that they wanted to pursue other interests. So they um, asked to, to pull back out of the show. Now, you know, and, and, and I'm, I was sort of neutral last year about it. I could have taken it or leaving it, more, probably more left it. But Zach, my other twin, and his wife, and, and Jackson and Amy, my ex-wife, we're all very interested. They thought they had a lot more story. They have a lot more stories to tell. So um, they, you know, we all decided in the end, or they did really, you know, and I went along with that, that it was time to, to go ahead and do some more shows. So that's for the season that's coming out here, April 2nd, it's going to start. So we've been working. People think our show kind of goes away, but really we're behind the scenes working our butts off, you know, for eight months making episodes almost every day we're filming or you know four days a week anyway and uh and now we have a, a package of episodes that are ready to air here just in a, april 2nd you know on tuesday night so they'll run for you know 10 or 12 weeks 
Um, and then, um, and then we'll go, you know, probably back to making more. So they'll be off the air for a while. So th- it's confusing to the viewers because they don't know whether they're watching a rerun or a brand new episode sometime. Um, and, uh, but everything right now is reruns until April 2nd. And then you're watching brand new content that was started filming, you know, in the summer of last year. Yeah. I think for most of us, when we watch uh, shows like that, we, we take it for granted that it all looks like it comes so easily and natural. We don't realize all the work that's going on behind the scenes and what it takes to actually put a show like that together. So, and then plus be a father, a husband, a grandfather, all on top of that. I mean, it's gotta be, it's gotta wear you down. I would imagine. I would say you got it. You hit the nail. On the <laughs> yeah, you hit the nail on the head. And trying to get, you know, you're right. It's hard enough being a father and a husband uh, without that layer. And so the doing reality television, people call me all the time. Oh, I want to, you know, be in reality television. It is not for the faint of heart at all. It is very difficult. It plays havoc because you, you, especially in our format, the format that we're in, you know, you don't know that. The, you know, it's difficult to know where the lines of, you know, truth are versus made up story stuff, you know. And so, um, you know, I, I could say something that's kind of egged on by the producers and then I have to go to the family and say, hey, guys, that's not true. That's not really how I feel. I just I had to say that to make everything kind of fit together and work, you know. And we 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 as a family work very, very hard to make sure that what we put out is very, very much in line with the truth and what's actually happening. But sometimes the timing is, you know, I, I recently on the Internet got beat up, you know, over like, oh, Matt was faking it. He wasn't really buying a house. you know. And it's like if people could hear the exact explanation, they'd go, oh, okay, that makes perfect sense. But the way that the timing of when this uh, episode came out, when this content was filmed, um, you know, there was no deception, no lies, nothing. It just the timing was sort of a little bit askew. Um, and, there, you know, there was a perfectly good explanation that shows that there was no, um, you know, deception involved. Um, but sometimes it just falls together in a way that looks like, you know, there, there's something going on. So when it, it's between us family members or between me and my kids, I have to be very um, good about communicating, going to them and or and them to me and say, hey, dad, um, you know, like recently my kids, they got a, a Jack and Tori bought a house that had a lot of stairs. I don't like the house with a lot of stairs. So I was very vocal about that, you know, on the television. Um, then I had to go to them and say, hey, I actually love your house. I, I don't love the stairs. That's true. But um, I uh, love your house. I think you guys did a wonderful job because I don't want them to watch the TV and think I hate their home. Uh, so, um, <laughs> anyway, you get the. I think you get the idea there. Yeah, it's, that's another one of those things we, we don't really consider. But um, all right. Well, listen, the show has been a, a huge success, and you got another season of it coming out. What type of uh, goals or what plans do you have for the future, maybe beyond the show? Um, well, Amy and I, it's depicted on the show. It's a very kind of interesting season that's coming out, um, uh, about the farm and, you know, am I going to buy it from her? Is she going to buy it from me? Um, are we both going to just go status quo? So we're, we're working on that. So my, my plans is to get that settled uh, over the next few months. Um, and then, uh, once that's settled, you know, I am, we can, I'd, you know, love to maybe build a home or a house on there that's custom to me. Um, um, if not, if it doesn't, if she decides to be the one that buys the farm, then, you know, I might, uh, build, construct a home somewhere else in, uh, in the Portland area. 
Um, I'm talking to you today from Arizona. I got a home down here with my girlfriend, Karen, and, and uh, so we spend as much uh, time down here as we can enjoying the warm weather and the, the sunshine. Um, but uh, I, I've got all my businesses. My, I do, I'm looking at doing another book. I've actually already written my second Little Lucy book called Little Lucy Big Bully, which I haven't done the artwork for yet, but I'm working on it. I really enjoy doing children's books um, and, and giving them a strong message of resilience and, um, and overcoming adversity and what have you. Um, so that's um, a passion of mine that I'd, I'd like to continue to pursue. Um, and other than that, I, I stay I stay busy in my day to day. I everybody said, when are you going to retire? And I'm like, I I, I don't see that um, me retiring as a work you know working out too well. Yeah, that's awesome. Good for you. Uh, last thing I want to hit you with here, Matt. I I love to ask all the dads that I get on the podcast. What type of advice do you have for that new dad or for that about to be father who's out there listening? My my biggest advice, to, you know, first off, you know, everybody's got to find their own way. There's no real perfect guidebook of do it this way or do it that way. But let let, let your kids, you know, be who they're going to be. I mean, you can – obviously, you want to discipline them and, and, and correct them and teach them manners and please and thank yous and all that. But really, at some point, you need to let go of uh, – of trying to control your kids and forcing them to be somebody that they're not and realize that every, you know, I have four kids. They're all very different personalities, extraordinarily different. They, they match every, all four corners of, a, of, you know, of the world in terms of their, their thoughts and their beliefs and their, you know, um, pursuits. And I, I just have to love them and accept them all for that and, and work to, switch gears and develop them and realize they each have different needs and different, you know, um, desires for, for my time. And I, you know, I didn't always understand that perfectly. And, and it's cost me, you know, that things I'm relationship that I'm finally, you know, figuring that out and, and, uh, making good by, by some of those early mistakes. But, uh, um, that's, that's my biggest advice for new dads is let, let your, uh, you know, let your kids kind of be who they are and develop. They're interested in, you know, video games, then become a video gamer with them. If they're interested in reading, you know, be, become an avid reader with them. So, um, or soccer or whatever the case may be. Yeah, very well said. That's great advice. Uh, Matt Roloff, this has been a pleasure for me. And I got to say thank you so much for giving me a few minutes of your time on First Class Fatherhood. Well, thank you, Alex. Appreciate it. Good, good work you're doing. So keep it up. Hey, dads, are you looking to boost your energy level? Strikeforce Energy has got you covered. With a Strikeforce Energy Packet, you can turn any beverage into an energy drink. Their original energy packets contain no sugar, no calories, just an explosion of energy and flavor added to any beverage. Strikeforce Energy is veteran-owned, and all their products are made right here in the United States. Co-founded by Navy SEAL Sean Matson, Strikeforce Energy blows away the energy drink competition. Right now, First Class Fatherhood listeners can save... 15% off their purchase by visiting StrikeForceEnergy.com and using the promo code FATHERHOOD. Strikeforce Energy turns any beverage into an energy drink. Get yours today. StrikeForceEnergy.com, promo code FATHERHOOD. Uh, joining me now, First Class Father, Tony Hawk. Welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, let's start here. How many kids do you have and how old are they? Uh, I have four of my own and two stepchildren. Uh, they are 26. One is 20 today, actually. Um, 19, 17, 16, and then those are all boys, and my daughter is 10 years old. 
Wow, very cool. Um, what type of uh, sports or activities were they all into growing up? Uh, well, they all played traditional sports for the most part. And they, you know, they they did soccer and they did baseball and stuff. But skateboarding was always around, and so they they just sort of learned it by default. And now into their teenage years, that's basically their go-to activity besides surfing and snowboarding. Um, and it, not because of me, really, because of their friends. A lot of a lot of the people around here. We live in Southern California. A lot of their friends skate, and that's sort of the activity that brings them together. Yeah, very cool. Did you ever get involved in coaching at all when they were playing those other uh, sports like soccer and baseball? Uh, a little bit in basketball, yeah. Um, okay. And that was probably the sport I was best at growing up, too, besides skateboarding. So I felt somewhat comfortable. Um, you know, with the other sports, I didn't feel like I – I had the chops to put them through any sort of routines because I didn't, I didn't really know how to play myself that well. Yeah, I kind of do the same thing myself, especially with soccer. I coach them until they're about six, and then I let them go and let the real people that know what they're doing take over. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 you can help them to a point, but if, you're, if you really don't know the moves, then it feels kind of silly. Yeah, that's true. Um, all right, maybe for the one or two people you know, in the world that don't know, please take a minute here just to hit my listeners with a little bit about your background and what you do. Uh, well, I'm a professional skateboarder. I started when I was about 10 years old and turned pro when I was 14. Um, that may sound amazing, but skating was a very small community, so it didn't take a whole lot to, <laughs> to rise above uh, or to be considered a pro. Um, and I've been doing it ever since. I had a lot of ups and downs through my career, um, but probably hit my biggest stride in the late 90s with the Tony Hawk series of video games and um, X Games and commercials and things like that, and still doing it at age 50. Yeah, it's been an amazing journey that you've had. And, and, and skateboarding, we, we know it really wasn't very popular when you first turned pro. Who, were the, who kind of influenced you at the onset of your career? Who did you kind of look up to and admire when you were just beginning? Uh, there were a few people I thought that were pushing the limits of skating at the time. Um, not that they made a huge career out of it because it was sort of the right place, wrong time for them. But I would say Eddie Alguera was a huge influence on me because he was the most progressive skater at the time. Um, and then the one who inspired me to really try to learn how to fly out of these swimming pools was Steve Caballero because he was the closest to my size when I saw him um, in magazines at the time. And I, I recognized something in him that I felt like, okay, I have his type of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm his size and he's flying. I want to learn how to do what he's doing. Yeah, very cool. Um, when did fatherhood first come into the picture for you, Tony? How old were you when you first became a dad? And how did becoming a father kind of change your perspective on life? Uh, I was relatively young. I was 24 when my first son was born. And uh, it, it changed my perspective in terms of, uh, in terms of really hustling to make a living because at that moment in my life, skating had took a downturn and it was really hard. It was challenging to make a living. There were, there were very few options and I felt like I had to hustle extra hard because now I had to provide for family. Um, and it changed my schedule significantly. I think that was probably, <laughs> that was the moment in my life when I realized I couldn't just sleep till whenever I needed to or wanted to. And, um, I'd say ever since then, 26 years going, um, I've been getting up early ever since and, and really making the most of my time with my kids, especially in the morning before they go to school, um, and, and prioritizing 
my um my obligations to to uh basically make sure that being a father comes first and that I can do my job second um or combine the two like a lot of times I'll go on a trip and take my family with me because it's sort of a paid vacation where say I'm going to an event in Sydney Australia I know that um I can swoop them in on the travel and as long as I meet my obligations there, we get to have family time for the rest of the, the, rest of the trip. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And, and I know that you've been through uh, several divorces, and because you're such a popular figure, they're high profile when this happens. How has the relationship been between all of your kids and now also bringing new kids, your new relationship, into the mix as well? How has that all been for you to handle as a father? Um, well, it's always a challenge, obviously, but I, I think that I, I've learned a lot over the years, especially in the last 10 years, and come to realize my priorities and also just my um, being comfortable with, with myself and my level of intimacy and, and, and really being with the right person. And so uh, I've come a long way. I mean, I went through a lot of chaos just because, I, you know, I can blame all kinds of distractions and stuff, but ultimately it was, it was me that was to blame. And, and um, through this, this success and fame, things get weird, yet you encounter challenges you never imagined that would ever come to light or that would ever, that would ever be imposed on you. And um, so I would say that I've I really come to terms with being a more effective father, being more present, um, and being a better, being a better partner, um, being a better husband. And so, uh, you know, there's, it, it is weird to live in public like that, but at the same time, like, I accept it. I accept my, my own, my own uh, faults and I accept... Um, that what I was doing probably wasn't the best approach to being a, a, you know, a husband or a father as well. Yeah, well said. And and I'm curious about this too because I have three boys and then I got uh, my girl on the fourth try. If we didn't get her on four, we'd have five by now. But um, what was sort of the changes or, or, or differences for you uh, having all these boys and then now having the girl? What was what were some of the changes of that or some noticeable differences for you as a father? Um, well, the boys are always very active. And it was just sort of keeping them going and keeping them entertained with providing things to do or, or things for their, them and their friends to do. When I had my daughter, it changed dramatically because she just wanted alone time. She wanted very quiet time. And um, that was not what I was used to. I was used to the constant going and, and the sort of chaos of boys. And so um, it, it, it was fun, but also it gets very isolating because then it's like, well, I need to be available to my other kids as well. So it was a little bit of a um, learning curve. Um, and I, I had to sort of break her out of that mode after a while and introduce her to more of, of social aspects and, and really get her to appreciate all the people around her. And, and that has, ha has happened in the last few years. Yeah, and I did see the video you posted there on Instagram about her coming out of her little fear of the skateboarding. What, Walk me through that. What was, like, the, the events leading up to that moment? And is she still uh, hitting the skateboard? Yeah, it's something that we were doing after school. I have a, I have a office with a little skate facility here in San Diego. And so um, she was asking about learning how to skate. So we would go there. That was sort of our, our quality time together. And then um, we went one day, and someone was skating the ramp that we usually skate. And she was a little intimidated and, and kind of uh, didn't want to, go out there with, with other people around. So we went behind it. There's a little setup behind it that we don't usually skate. And um, I said, you know, you're probably going on this now considering what we've been doing on this other ramp. And, and uh, 
she kind of didn't believe me, and I went down holding her hands a couple times, and then what you saw in the video is the first time she did it without ever holding on to me. Um, and it was a total, it was very spontaneous. I think that's probably the best way that it could have happened because we went there with great expectations. Um, she might have been too scared. Yeah, that was so cool to see. Um, and I always love to ask dads about their discipline style because I'm always curious about that, how they discipline their children. Um, how, how, what kind of disciplinarian are you as a father, and has your discipline style changed over the years? Um, it's definitely changed. I think I've, I've gotten more effective in terms of um, not ignoring <laughs> problems or or not just just trying to – like I used to just try to distract them from, from certain things. Like if they were – doing something that I didn't want them to do, I would try to distract them with something else instead of really getting into the problem and, and, and trying to show them that this is not a, an appropriate behavior. Um, and so I'm gotten, I've gotten a lot better at that and, and, and sort of pushing through the uncomfortableness of, of giving them that perspective. And I think it's just, it's really, at some point, it's, it's explaining to them why this is not the way to do things, but also staying very... Um, Staying very true to not accepting it, and I, you know that's that's something that's really hard. I mean, that's one of the hardest things in parenting is is when you you got to stand your ground. Like, no, this is not okay, and this is not what's going on, and you need to stop it. Yeah, I'm I'm going through that myself uh, as we speak here too with one of my children. Um, uh, now you've had several top selling video games, you know, throughout the years here now with the mobile game out and everything. And, and that's another struggle for a lot of parents right now is the technology and the video games. Do your kids play your video games, or how do you kind of handle all the technology stuff, especially with your daughter? Um, yeah, they uh, – well, it's – the kids definitely played our games growing up. Uh, my daughter is – she has gotten into video games, but she's more about Mario type of games, like Mario Kart, Super Mario Brothers. Um, and so that's been fun for us to share together, to – to learn, like we we go through each of those games and try to figure out all the secrets and try to finish all the levels, um, and so we do that quite a bit together. Uh, it really, it's just more it's more if 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 they're with people, if they're in a social situation, I, I I limit their screen time just because I want them to be present and not sort of looking down, distracted, even though they're in the same room. Um, and that's something I got to work on with all of them. And, uh, and, you know, it's just more like, look, we're here, we're all, we're all in together, put the phones down. Yeah, it's, it's definitely something that we're all struggling with out here, especially as the technology gets more and more addictive each and every year. Um, what about, what do the holidays look like for you, Tony? Uh, do you guys all get together or do you visit the kids separately? Do you have a spot that you all go to? What do the holiday seasons look like for you? Uh, we're usually here for, um, through the, like, through holidays, through Christmas, and then you, we try to take a trip together through New Year's. And um, let's see, the last time we went, we went to, uh, I think we went to Fiji for New Year's. Um, sometimes we go to Mammoth Mountain, which is here in California. We, we have a place there. So if we're, if we're trying to get some snow, uh, we'll go there. And um, we always just try to get, make sure we get a trip together because all of our kids are on different spring breaks through the year. So the only time we really have them is during... The ho all the all together is during the holidays, uh, during the winter holidays, or in the summertime. But in the summertime, they're all scattered with other plans. 
Yeah, okay. Uh, and how about, uh, are you ready for that grandfather title yet? Anything look like prospects are <laughs> making, or are we holding off on that for now? Uh, well, that's not for me to hold off on, but um, I, I could see that, that that couldn't be too far off, considering my son is 26 and he's in a pretty serious relationship already. Okay, very cool. Well, you've had so much success already in your career. You're a legend in the skateboarding community. What kind of goals do you have for yourself for the future? What's next for Tony Hawk? Uh, I, honestly, I, I, I really love what I do. I do a lot of, um, still do a lot of skating. I do a lot of speaking engagements. And I think what's next is for me to sort of harness in my schedule a little more so that I, I can be available because we have, we have two kids in college. We have one on the way this next semester and then one going next year. So we are about to sort of, you know, almost all the kids are going to be gone, and I would really like to be around for those last few years. Yeah, okay. Uh, all right, last thing I'm going to hit you with here, Tony, I love to ask all the dads that I get on the podcast, what type of advice do you have for that new father or for that about-to-be dad who's out there listening? Um, it's, it's going to be crazy and overwhelming, but it's going to be the best thing you've ever done. Yeah, very good. I love the advice. Uh, Tony Hawk, i got to say thank you so much for spending this time with me here on First Class Fatherhood. Sure thing, man. Thanks for having me.